This episode is sponsored by Anchor.fm. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place for free, which you can use right from your phone or computer. The creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. You can edit on any device including your iPhone, iPad, and computer. They'll even distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. You can easily make money from your podcast with absolutely no minimum listenership required. Anchor is everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So what are you waiting for? Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hello guys, welcome to episode number 11 of Discussions with Brandon and Nicole. My name is Brandon and I will be joined by my co-host Nicole. Hello there. Also, we have a special guest on the show. His name is Eric Doggett. He is a artist, um, and he is a big Star Wars fan. So we're gonna have some discussions about Star Wars on this podcast. Say hello. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me. So today, I thought it would be a good idea because Eric is a music fan as well. So I thought it would be a good idea to bring him onto the show and discuss music in the Star Wars film. So first off. What do you think about the Star Wars music? Oh, it's some of the best. I mean, it's it's when you look at it um, and compare it to other films and, and other film scores. I mean, to me, it's it's easily as a as like an entire body of work. It's easily in my uh, top two, maybe three, but at least top two, probably of all time of uh, of film scores. Okay, so obviously John Williams is the main person right he did all of the music except for rogue one and solo so how do you think rogue one and solo's music compare to john williams music in the original star wars oh yeah well i mean uh, rogue one to me was had several callbacks to uh the original uh the original trilogy and and i i felt like um um they they were really good about inserting different parts of music that we had heard before in similar scenes. And so that was just, um, that was a great, that was a great score. Uh, solo as well. It was a little bit different in that I felt like um, John Williams came in at some point and wrote like a, a theme for Han that they kind of built off of. So that was kind of some groundwork that was already laid. And then they um, kind of built on top of that. Yeah. So, uh, did you listen to our latest episode, which was Finding Hidden Things in Star Wars Music? Yes. So, I wanted to know if you knew any of those things prior to listening to that episode. And if so, what did you think of those? Like, how would you, what was your reaction when you heard those little themes? Yeah, I liked it. I I, I knew some of them, and then I felt um, some of the ones like that Nicole had shared were ones I had not thought of or, or recognized before but uh when she laid it out i felt like i was like it actually makes sense and it uh and then i, I could definitely hear it so yeah that was, so I that did was well. a cool little yeah <laughs> you did, <laughs> I you did great well. it was a little uh it was a little and just to toss mine in there now that I'm, I'm thinking about it just one pops into my head in in rogue one when they're taking that um that stolen imperial freighter down to scarif and they go through the shield there's just a little bit of a hint of a music there that uh, Michael Giacchino added that is the same as them landing uh, on Endor with their stolen Imperial shuttle. So uh, if you listen to those both of those pieces, you'll you'll hear the same same sort of melody in there. 
Oh, that's cool. I, I would so, never have known that. Haven't seen that yeah, movie in so I, long. <laughs> well, I didn't notice that. I watched it not too long ago, and I did not notice that, so that's interesting. Okay, so what did you think specifically in our last episode about the Ray, Palpatine, and Ben theme connection? Um, that was interesting to me. I, I'm not, I'm not sure where I fall on that, but it, the idea that um, those themes are are connected is um, it's pretty interesting. I think Nicole had also posted a video or shared a video with us recently where someone had taken a, uh, a piece of video footage from the Force or from um, uh, Rise of Skywalker with uh, with Ben and and replaced it with. What was it, Nicole? It was like music from uh, all the Jedi being killed in in Revenge of the Sith, perhaps. I think it was some sort oh, of Oh yes, like yes, that. yes. It was um the one with uh, Ben and Ray on the Death Star. Yes. That one. Yes. Yeah, it was someone replaced that with Anakin's dark deeds. Yeah. So uh, to me, yeah. that kind of shows, like, to answer your question, Brandon, and then just in general, that a lot of these themes are can be kind of universal throughout all nine films. And so you can take them and put them against different pieces of video and and get that similar sort of feel, that, that similar sort of reaction. So do you think that that ability to uh, interchange themes throughout all of the movies, do you think that's like a really good thing? Do you think that could have been used to like a really enhance the soundtrack and the movie? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is, this is a hallmark of... Of particularly of John Williams, but of, of this style of film score writing where you're creating, it's called leitmotif, where you're creating specific themes for mm-hmm. specific characters and scenes. Not all movies call for that. Sometimes directors want uh, composers to write music that fits the scene, the, the, the scene but doesn't um, get attached to characters in that way. But with George Lucas, um, it, that was, that was a, a hallmark early on. So, um, that ability to do that is actually a, it's a pretty big deal in, in, in composing worlds because it's it's surprisingly enough, as I understand, it's not really that difficult once you're in the kind of music space to come up with a theme for, let's say, a character for Ray. What's difficult is finding new ways to tell that that same theme over several films. And that's where I think he really excels. Okay. So, going back to Ray's theme, I know that was high on Nicole's list, and it was definitely on my list. <laughs> like, where would you rank that for you? Like, do you think it was, like, a really good theme for that fit her well? Especially in The Force Awakens, when we first see her. Um, I, th- I think so. I-, I would have to confess that originally, when I, when I, the first time I heard the soundtrack for Episode 7, I wasn't too impressed. It took a while for that to kind of grow on me. Um, but now I, I definitely associate that theme with her and and feel like it was it was a great bit of writing on his part especially in the the beginning i don't know if it were they were bells or glockenspiels or whatever that that opening the series of opening notes is that really kind of to me tells the story oh, the, of her being are you talking about the marimbas maybe it was a marimba yeah i'm not, I'm not quite sure but to i know me, what that's you're talking kinda, about yeah. yeah it really tells the story to me of her being uh young and youthful i mean and 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 so later as that film the film progresses throughout the three with her in it those that theme gets bigger and bigger um and then whenever they bring back that marimba just for a little bit it's just a reminder hey this was 
this was someone who was, you know, her late teens or early 20s in this story. And so there's still that bit of her in this character, even though she's had this incredible story arc. Well, right. so actually, um, Ray's theme is uh, one of John Williams' most popular songs now. If you actually look on his profile, um, I'm, I'm looking at Apple Music right now. Um, it's actually in his number three slot for most popular songs. So it's his most oh. popular Star Wars song at the moment. Is it really? So it actually beats it is, out yeah. the main title? Mm-hmm. It's, wow. um, Hedwig's theme is his number one, and Carol the Bells from Home Alone is his number two. Um, but yeah, it beats out the main theme. Uh, the, uh, the next Star Wars song that's followed by Ray's theme is the, the start of uh, The Force Awakens. The main and title in it. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. That just really goes to show how much music can have an effect on people and, and can connect with people to the point where they like that theme because of what it reminds them of her character. And they've zeroed in on her character above the larger universe, you know, as a whole, uh, and really, really attach themselves to what her theme means, which is cool. Well, also, um, going back as when you were saying that she was like a young character, I feel like that music, like, not only helps the audience, which by the way is, I, I would think of it as a more younger targeted audience. So I feel like the music not only resonates with the character, but also the audience. So they're all like, relatable and stuff um because it's all they're it's kind of like targeted to young people and i think the theme fits well with that i would agree i would agree and i would think there was probably elements of that in episode four as well that they were that the the young teenage you know boy in luke's case or, or girl in ray's case was that was the story and so the music was going to reflect that and i think they they definitely nailed that part of it Right. So, I know that you, I remember you telling me that you liked the Anthem of the Evil in The Rise of Skywalker, and I like that too. There's just something about it that I like, and I want to hear your perspective on that. Um, well, that's a, to me, that's part of Star Wars, that of something that we've only seen really strongly since Episode One. Now, they did this in... in in episode six in Return of the Jedi and that's but but bigger in episode one and that's the use of a choir and that that to me was just a huge a huge deal with um with Duel of the Fates but but there was that uh that choir usage in, in Return of the Jedi so I think when I heard that um in Rise of Skywalker oh, yes. I really kind of, I attached myself it, it took me back to what I remember of the choir being included and hearing the hearing those voices um and there's a there's also like a really nice swell in there somewhere in the middle or the end of, of everyone just being loud, which was which is awesome too. Right, uh, Nicole, well, and, were you um, gonna say something? I yeah, I was. I was gonna ask. Um, so in the trailer for the Rise of Skywalker, um, the the song of uh, Imperial March and Duel of the Fates, and you know the idea that those were gonna be mixed and Battle of the Heroes, all those. Um, it never showed up in the actual film. So do you think that it would have been cool if that had been during, like, been playing during uh, Ray and Ben's fight? Absolutely. And, and I, I could tell you that I, I feel like the reason that that music was included in the trailer was to try to 
remind everybody, especially people of my generation that that grew up on four, five, six, that that this was going to be a story to try to wrap all that up. And so they were trying to throw all these musical cues in there to kind of bring everybody back into the fold about this being a bigger story. I don't necessarily believe they they accomplished that in particularly particular, but but that was the goal. And another thing with trailer music is if you get into this, you'll start to find out that trailer music happens way after pretty much after the film's done like usually way after the film's done and it may not even be written by the guy who scored it it could be written by Mm -hmm. somebody who has a business that just does trailer music or um sometimes a director may find music that they like and they cut the trailer to that because that they feel that particular piece of music it matches the feel even though the music itself is never in the film um, I want to say episode seven, the first trailer, the first teaser of that, I want to say John Williams wrote that, if I remember correctly. It certainly does sound like him. Um, but as, I think he did, yeah. Yeah, and so as, as those trailers kind of progressed, though, the, the couple that came after that, it was obvious that it was not him to me, um, but it was somebody who was using every big sound they had to to reproduce those themes well. So it's just a... It's just an interesting side note, the way trailer music works and, um, and trailers in general. It's something that's done after the film is pretty much done and, um, and is a completely different, it's a marketing decision. I think it's marketing driven more so than, than creativity driven. They're trying to piece together things that are gonna bring people in. And um, that's why it's made up of different scenes and the music is going to be something particular to it which may or may not show up in the film yeah i think i i just mainly asked that because um i've seen a lot of reviews and i've seen a lot of um youtube videos with comments and a lot of people are kind of just questioning why it wasn't in the film and they're kind of disappointed because it was such a big thing in the trailers yeah and if i mean if if we went down that route of including um, prior music in that last film, it would have just been, I can, I can imagine, I mean, there's all sorts of themes that we would have loved to have been explored and, and brought back. Um, and, and so that would have just made the, the movie super long. I think I remember hearing before it was released that it was, if not, if it wasn't the longest amount of, of music, it was very close from what I remember hearing that he had scored a, a ton of music for this film. Um, and that's also something else that you don't get usually traditionally on the first release of these soundtracks is you don't get the full score as it appeared in the film. Sometimes you never get it. Uh, mm-hmm. Sometimes it doesn't get released. Um, for, I have several films that I uh, would love to get the score to, or if I've tracked it down, it's because I found it you know, through some weird eBay sale or something like that, but it was mm-hmm. never really released to the to the public. So, well, um, yeah, yeah, that's all right. Too. Well... Yes, but sometimes, this is not all the times, but most of the time I can actually go on YouTube and somehow, some some way, people have found these unreleased soundtracks and scores that I was yes. trying to look for, which is really great for me because I love those, you know? Well, yeah. I think it's um it's people who have, like, either the original CDs or copies of the files from, like, way back in the day. Um, because if you, if you look at it, the album covers look... Uh, kind of kind of older yeah. yeah and sometimes that happens um uh where and i'll and i'll just just throw this particular example out um that movie the karate kid part uh two and three i think those scores were released 
on a very, very limited basis. And then they either ran out or stopped printing them or whatever. I don't know what happened. Um, but it's very difficult to find a CD of those scores. Mm -hmm. And if you go looking for them on eBay, it's $100, $200 for that CD because it's so incredibly rare to find it. So that does happen. And, and with Star Wars in particular, what I'm hoping they do is what they did with Episode One at one point, which was released a, a double CD set of um, of all the cues that were or, or that I can remember, most of them that were in Episode One, and that was an additional release that came at some some point after the the original uh, CD release. So I would love to have that. I actually would love to even more so have you know, a 10 CD set of something of, of all the films and all the cues that were used or whatnot. It's just uh, really cool to hear that. And just to spend a little, one more point on this, on episode four, I've got somewhere around here, a CD uh, score for that. And at the end of the second disc, after the film's over, there's maybe five or six recordings of the main title and you hear the guys in the booth say, okay, this is number two, this is number three, try. And every time it's just a little bit different between what the players are doing and minor little changes they've made to instruments or whatnot. But there's, it's a cool recording to hear that main title done four or five times in a row and each one sounding just a little bit different. Well, right. And, so, um, I, oh, sorry. Well, I was just going to say, um, when you were talking about episode one, I'm thinking especially they i correct me if i'm wrong but i think they may have they don't have this on like itunes or spotify or anything but the dialogue version of duel of the fates yeah, like i don't know if that's that. on the itunes version or not if, if it's not then it's on then i got that off the well, double cd set right so i was just like thinking like what are your thoughts like on the dialogue version do you think it was cool um do you think they should have released it on iTunes just like as an extra bonus or whatever? So that dialogue version came out as a music video back in whenever this film came out. What was it? 99, I think, or some, somewhere around there. Um, I remember seeing that the premiere of that music video. Maybe it was on MTV or somewhere. Um, and it was uh, a big deal because it was a mix of film clips with the orchestra playing Duel of Fates. And so that's... As I understand it, how that started, it was, it was a music clip that was a music. It was a music video that then just got turned into a track and released. Right. Uh, what were you going to say, Nicole? Oh, I was just going to say, um, I, I was going to bring back a topic that I mentioned. I think in our song video, our or sorry, not video, our um, our song rating episode, um, and that was uh, the carbon freezing song from Empire Strikes Back, uh, the carbon freezing chamber. I don't exactly remember what it was called, but um, we have that song from the original Star Wars CDs, um, and so we have a lot of the old music, but it's not on iTunes today. I remember you telling me that, yeah. Oh, wow. Um, and it's kind, of, it's kind of a shame because it's one of my favorite songs, um, but you can only find it on places like YouTube now. Yeah, there's all sorts of cool stuff like that. that you just saying that reminded me on episode four, when uh, when I was, let's see, that was, um, I don't know, 10, 12 years old or whenever, I, however old I was, they had a, a record that came out. It was a 45 record, which so it was just a small record and only played for 
maybe um, 10 minutes aside or something like that. It wasn't a, lot, a, a full length record, but it was, it was like the story of Star Wars. And it was audio clips from the movie and a narrator kind of walking you through the story. But because the record was so small, they couldn't tell the whole story the way it occurred. So for example, when, when uh, Luke gets attacked by the Tusken Raiders, they took that part out and they just said, hey, he, he just says, um, yeah, I know somebody who could help us. His name's Ben. Let's go see him. And so they just they just go see him. Like they don't have to they don't have to deal with the you know the attack of the raiders or anything like that. So that's funny. I'll have to find that somewhere. See if I can track it down. But it's just is it just to show that there's all is it a this record? different. Yeah, it was a 45 record. So um, maybe maybe somebody's put it on YouTube well, somewhere. But I feel like we have a record about some someone narrating this story. Yes. Now that is. That actually is called, that might be called the story of Star Wars. That's a full-size record that has the narration with it. Um, and it does kind of go through the whole story of episode four. Uh, that Nothing gets changed or cut out. But it's, it's interesting hearing that story told with the music and then a narrator as well. Okay, so a lot of people, including Nicole and potentially you, I'm not quite sure, did not like The Phantom Menace. Do you think that the music made it a lot better than it would have been or than it was like oh, do you yeah. think the well, music is... changed it yeah. and made it much better this is this is the for me one of my i don't say hang up or a challenge i deal with is a lot of times in film i can love the music and not necessarily like the film and that's a struggle because um music is designed to not just support the film, but when you hear it again later, to take it back to what you were experiencing during the film. So if you have a bad experience of the film because you don't like the story of the characters or whatever, music can remind you of that later on. And so you, I, I, I don't want to you know trash Phantom Menace because I, I did like parts of it. I mean, some would argue that the lightsaber duel at the end was probably the best in, in all nine films for in many respects. So. I don't, want, I don't want to, you know, trash on every part of it, but um, I feel like in that in that movie, I'm thankful for the music, but it will remind me of the story aspects that I wasn't too excited about, you know, like this very, very young kid doing a lot of crazy things and, and flying spaceships and, and attacking droids and uh, all of that towards the end. And then everything with... Um, uh, the, the the scenes on on Naboo during that that whole battle with the Gungans it was just it was it just wasn't it, it, you have to remember at that point this is ninety nine we had been you know fourteen fifteen years whatever it was without a Star Wars film so at that point we were all itching for something big and uh, even George Lucas at one point came out and said look you guys need to kind of tamper down your expectations because it's just going to be a movie that they're going to try to make the best that they can. And so we can't look at this as being the, the biggest thing ever. And so I think some people felt that way. Then they felt that episode two was a little bit better. And then three, they thought was actually starting to get into a groove of what a star Wars movie needed to be. Because well, at this point he's telling, he's wrapping things up. I was actually reading an article on this today. I believe it was Screen Rant who made it. But um, I was reading on 
how it had been like 16, 17 years, whatever, since the Return of the Jedi, the last Star Wars movie that they made. And people were, they had extremely high expectations for a really good movie. And then The Phantom Menace came out and it just let everyone down. Yeah, I mean, it yeah. was it was all we heard about was The Phantom Menace. I mean, it was everywhere. It was going to be the biggest uh, movie event of all time. And uh, so everyone had stored all this anxiety up. They had stored all these high expectations. And generally, I felt like they we all appreciated the ties that they were starting to make, the introduction, introduction of, of Obi-Wan and um, some of the backstory that we kind of been hinted about in episode four but um you know it's just it just it just depends if you're if you're a younger generation if if you were 10 12 13 when episode one came out to you that's star wars and episode four right. five and six they're just older movies with really bad special effects even more so now i mean the younger generation now that loves seven eight nine probably does not understand the appeal of four, five, and six. Mm -hmm. Well, that's interesting for me because I wasn't really, I wasn't, I wasn't born in a time where there was Star Wars movies. So my Star Wars has just been all over the place. It's been all three trilogies. Whereas you, for example, you you were with the originals. That was like your Star Wars, and people born now, their Star Wars would be the sequel trilogy. Yeah. Well, and I mean. Yeah. Even even with a movie like Revenge of the Sith, which came out in 2005, still had really great visual effects at the time, and some might even say it had better visual effects than movies that were made after it. Yeah, I think I think especially uh, Mustafar. Oh, that yeah. was that was a great, and and I think um, the realization there are videos on YouTube where they'll go into how much of those prequels were actually practical effects. There was there was always this talk that George Lucas was always doing everything with CGI, and it wasn't necessarily the case. I mean, like the in Episode Two, the big battle scene that that happens on Geonosis, there or the um, the big kind of Colosseum area, that pit area, that was actually a physical set that was built. It was mm -hmm. miniature, um, but you look at it and you're like, oh, it's all CGI, and it's not it's not necessarily the case. It it, it just uh, it just kind of came across that way because in some ways it, I think it got a little heavy-handed heavy in that regard. But um, Revenge of the Sith, yeah, I, I enjoyed that one too. I think what to me kind of plagued all three of the prequels was just too much of a focus on the the Senate and the politics of it and everyone floating around in giant frisbees and debating <laughs> things. Well, well so that that's was funny because that's why Brandon likes them. Well, it was just a change. It, I mean, it was just like a change of the movies. Like, nobody... It was just something totally different that nobody... Not necessarily nobody wanted, because I know some people want like that. But it was different to see, like, a different aspect or a different side of Star Wars. Yeah, so for you, it was like like a rest. Like, it was a, a moment to relax the brain and, and hear some exposition and dialogue that's not necessarily tied to um, a big action scene or something like that so a lot of times films will get in this rut where they have to move things along this is to me a big deal with episode nine that things just needed to move along and there was not a lot of time to sit and rest and reflect on growth of characters or hear additional uh, stories or um, perspective on them it just things needed to happen because they had so much stuff to do 
Uh, and this is kind of like a push and pull that happens with most films. How much do we tell you? How much do we leave for you to discover? Um, and when can we give you visual and auditory kind of pauses to relax and reflect a little bit and kind of collect yourself and then pick things back up again? Right. Well, the original That's... film was actually like over three hours, but then Disney ended up cutting a lot of it down. Well, Which is crazy. Wow. Well, and Disney also, we we talked about this in our Did Disney Ruin Star Wars, but Disney also took a lot of what J.J. wanted to be in Episode Nine out of the movie, which caused it obviously to be shortened. But there's a lot of things that he really wanted to be in the movie, but uh, didn't end up making it because Disney cut it all out. Yeah, so things like um, Ray and Ben kissing at the end, uh, uh, Abrams originally didn't even want that in the film, but Disney put it in there. Wow. So yeah, these sort of like kind of behind the scenes politic parts of filmmaking are always kind of interesting to me because it's, it's you, on the one hand, the, the story that the filmmaker wants to tell. And on the other hand, uh, the people that are providing the funding and what they're looking at it as. And this has actually been something that's been going on all through Star Wars. I mean, when you look at the, the stories of um, episode four and George wanting to tell a particular story and then running into trouble trying to find some company to just take a chance with him on it. Um, just studio after studio turning him down. Um, this is this is something that happens all through cinema. Um, if you remember uh, the movie Rocky with Sylvester Stallone, he wrote that and directed it. And he wanted to get that film made in the late 70s. And he found a company and they said, yeah, we'll help you, we'll make this film for you, but you can't be the star. And so he's like, no, this is about, this is the story I wrote. It's, it's all me. I want to be in it. So we had to go find somebody else. So there's always this back and forth between those who are doing the creating, the storytelling, and those who are providing the money to, to, to make it. And they need each other. They both, there's not one position that's better than the other. They both need each other to create this, this final thing. And, and a filmmaker cannot do it without money. And uh, a company that has funding needs somebody to tell a, an interesting, exciting story. Right. Well, and so this is kind of just a random fact. doesn't really have much to do with, like, music or anything. But it was just something that uh, I found out the other day. And it was that um, the first and last line of Star Wars are actually the exact same. And they're both by C-3PO. He um, says, did you hear that? Just an interesting cool. little fact. So. Wait, what I do you mean, like... Wow. Do what? I'm sorry, I'm confused. Um, the first the, and the last first, line. The first line of Star Wars ever was by C-3PO in A New Hope, and he says, did you hear that? And then that was also the last line of The Rise of Skywalker. So he, he oh, said wow. the first and last line, and it was the exact that's, same. And I'm cool. pretty sure it was um, uh, during the reunion scene when... Uh, Ray was flying in. I'm pretty sure that's when he said it. Wow. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of cool stuff like that. I will give J.J. Abrams credit for um, honoring yeah. the history um, of it all. And I, I remember the scene where uh, there's a good uh, documentary of them putting John Williams in episode nine and mm -hmm. him being just like a bartender or junk dealer. I forget what he was in that scene, but he's surrounded by little sculptures and they actually well, made all these sculptures for the, the films that he had been nominated or won i can't remember academy awards for so there was yeah. a little ship that looked like the ship from et and 
things related to to Jaws, and so that was just that was cool. That was really cool. Well, also in in our uh, Rise of Skywalker review, we talked about how there are a lot of hidden things in Episode Nine that tie back to the originals. Yeah, I mean it's um, it's kind of like a hallmark of of good storytelling, especially when you have so much material to work with. I mean, there's regardless of what direction you go in with a story, there's all of this backstory and all of these things that can be added as Easter eggs for fans or supporting things that are outside of the films. And I know they did a lot of that. Um, I know there was like a ship in Rogue One that flew over that everyone recognized from maybe Clone Wars or somewhere else. I can't remember, but... The people who knew that knew that. And if you did know it, well, it had no bearing on the story, but it was thrown in there as a tribute to that. So I, I do appreciate the work that all of these filmmakers and creative people have done overall on the entire um, kind of series of films to, to respect each other's work and, and honor it. Right. Well, thank you so much for joining us in today's episode, and we probably will have you back for another episode where we can discuss more about Star Wars. But uh, for now, we're going to end the episode off here. That was a great way to end the episode. So just wanted to give you all some updates. We did launch a website. You can find that, and I'll link it in the show notes. Uh, We have a Patreon if you all like to support us. You can or don't have to. It doesn't matter. And make sure to stay safe, and we will see you guys in the next episode. Oh, yeah. Stay safe. (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye, y'all. Bye. Take care, everyone.